Following the murder of George Floyd on May 25, 2020, companies rushed out to make bold statements in support of Black Lives Matter. They changed their avatars black, they cut checks, they took public stances with statements supporting racial equity and condemning racism. What happens after that? I think as I've been looking and watching companies and seeing how they've responded, there are many companies that, again, made those initial steps, but you haven't heard as much from since then. And then there are other companies who took some time to actually have some introspection, have some conversations within their teams, and decide to publicly and sustainably commit themselves to becoming an anti-racist company. One of those companies is Smart Recruiters. And in this episode, I'm excited to sit down with their CEO, Jerome Turnick, to talk a little bit more about their journey and plans on becoming an anti-racist company and an anti-racist force within the recruiting industry. We'll be back with that conversation after a brief word from our sponsor. Human resources, people operations, talent and culture. The truth is it really doesn't matter what you call your team. It's all about what kind of HR you practice. Redefining HR is a podcast exploring the leading edges of the industry. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, I'm an advocate for modern HR and have spent over 20 years in the field exploring people practices as a practitioner, an entrepreneur, an author, and a writer for Fast Company. Each week I sit down with CEOs, chief people officers, and transformative talent leaders to break down how they build progressive people teams and capabilities. This season of the podcast is sponsored by PIN. PIN is building the world's first employee-centric communications tool, enabling employees to automatically receive helpful messages at key moments throughout the employee lifecycle from onboarding, promotions, and everywhere in between. PIN puts your employees in control over when, how, and where they receive communications. You can check it out at pynhq.com. Now, on to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Redefining HR podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and I'm really excited today to be joined by Jerome Turning. Jerome is the founder and CEO of Smart Recruiters, and we are going to be digging into a range of topics today, but specifically, we're going to be talking about a recently released and published plans that uh, Jerome and his team uh, shared around becoming their path to becoming an anti-racist organization. Uh, and if you're listening to this podcast, I'm going to include a link to that post in the show notes so you can review that. Um, but there's a lot for us to cover, so let's get right in. Uh, Jerome. Thanks so much for making time uh, during these interesting days to uh, come on the podcast. For listeners that aren't familiar with you, if you wouldn't mind, let's just start with a brief uh, introduction on you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Lars. Um, so my name is Jerome Turning, founder and CEO of Smart Recruiters. Um, I'm uh, based out of San Francisco, originally French, as you probably already can figure out. Um, and um, I'm a recruiter at heart. I started in recruiting um, kind of early days, right out of college, um, started a recruitment agency and then went into tech um, and built one of the first applicant tracking systems um, and, uh, and then Smart Recruiters, which I founded in 2010, were kind of the generational successor to that ATS that you love uh, to hate. Um, and so we helped large organizations um, 
um, you know, such as Visa or LinkedIn or Twitter or Bosch, uh, optimize how they hire talents. We come in, we replace your ATS, and we make it easier to attract candidates, collaborate around the hiring, and uh, and stay organized. Um, and so I'm, yeah, I'm a recruiter with uh, my soul in technology, I guess. Yeah, well, you know, Drub, you're uh, you're one of the last uh, humans I saw when traveling. I think the uh, you know your conference in February of this year was the the last time I was on an airplane. So obviously, a lot has changed since then. Uh, you know, companies and yours included have all adapted to uh, a certain new way of working during COVID. And I know you have employees around the world. So how is you know COVID and kind of the response to the pandemic? impacted your your operational rhythms and, and how you work as a business? Um, it has impacted us um, quite deeply, actually, um, in, uh, in somewhat un, unexpected ways, right? So we obviously went remote, which was fine. Like we literally saw no disruption. We have the benefit of being knowledge workers, you know, all around. Everybody's digital. Everybody already had a laptop. So we kind of said to everyone, oh, why don't you stay at home tomorrow? And that was kind of the extent of it. We confirmed a few processes. We reorganized um, and work just carried on. Uh, where I think we, uh, uh, we had to evolve was like, okay, what does this mean long term? What does this mean to the culture of the company? Uh, how do we replace uh, the social component that we are missing short-term, long-term? So we created a smart cafe, which is now a, a virtual Zoom room where everybody goes and we do our town halls and Q&As and, you know, uh, sharing uh, uh, personal stories and playing with your kids or, or bringing your pet to work. Like, so we, we, we created a virtual uh, social agenda. Um, and we're actually rethinking all together our plans. So we're going to announce uh, uh, that we are going uh, remote first uh, uh, forever. So no, no coming back to the office. And, um, and our head of people has been working on a plan there to really get the best of, hey, everybody can work from home. Uh, but in certain locations, we maintain offices as a resource for collaboration. But we're, we just removed uh, the, 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 the need the expectation to be in the office every day, which is amazing when you think about it, uh, especially in hiring, right? Because now the world is our oyster. Like we can hire anywhere we want. And I absolutely love that. Yeah. I mean, that's fascinating. I'm curious, like when you, when you think about decisions like that, and I think that CEOs are in a position right now where, you know, obviously during these kind of volatile times, you're, you're having to make plans for the business on, you know, really what are, it's kind of incomplete information. You know, you, you don't exactly know the timing of how this will all unfold. You don't know the long-term impact of all the different uh, components of, you know, work kind of post COVID. So, you know, for you, how do you, how do you plan about what's next? How do you think about what's next for smart recruiters kind of with all the volatility that's happening? You know, it's, it's interesting because as you were, uh, going through that uh, question, my mind went to, well, Lars, that's why we have purpose and values in the first place. Like when all your processes and your decision-making matrix and blah, 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 get thrown out the window, what is left? What is left is why are we here? And how do we want to operate together? Like what do we believe in? And if you have a strong purpose, which we do, we're here to connect people to jobs at scale. That's a very simple one. 
and we have strong values, then we just actually um, uh, followed that path. And one of our value has been, uh, one of our value is as one. Um, so we exactly followed that value uh, to drive impact, which is another one of our value. And so in the heart of the pandemic, I actually stood up to the board and to our investors and, you know, I just flat out refused to do a reduction in force. Um, and, you know, I, I, I kind of put my job on the line here. I said, you know, yes, I understand this is all scary, but um, we are going to go through this and we're going to go through this as one. And I, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to ride that storm or weather the storm. We're going to thrive in the storm, right? And we really stepped up and leaned in. And, and I have seen a very, very uh, resilient organization um, during the last uh, six months. Everybody's tired. It's hard. I'm not saying, you know, things are, are easy, but we did post the best first half year ever uh, that we've had in company history. And I'm talking new sales, not, not just like keeping the lights on, right? And we've stepped up for our customers. We've increased our NPS, uh, moved uh, up to positive 43. Um, uh, in the first half, our ENPS for employees moved up to positive 44. And so we really like, we just, just, kind of brought ourselves together as one and we just leaned in to be a, a force of change, a force of positivity and, and, a, and a trusted partner to all of our constituents uh, in the market. And I think when I look back at that and I say, oh shit, how did that happen? This was not a decision. This was us just being very true to our purpose and, and values. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I think that these these circumstances have caused a lot of uh, what had long been held by some CEOs as, you know, truths and norms and, and views around things like remote work and just things that we're having to kind of deal with now. Uh, for you personally, kind of, have any of your beliefs around work shifted in, in this environment? Anything that you maybe held to be true in January, uh, you, you found not to be true now? Um. I think the one thing that um, that kind of surprised me is we are able to adapt so fast. I mean, this is really uh, uh, the resilience in overall in in the in the economy in in the in man, man, mankind has been um, interesting to watch, uh, and uh, and I think we will see very very positive. Uh, outcomes like I think there's going to be a before and after 2020, uh, and I am. I mean, maybe I'm I'm an optimist, but I think the the after looks a lot prettier than the before. I mean, for starters, remote work means a complete uh, this better distribution of wealth in uh, jobs across countries, across territories, across markets, um, and across uh, people, diverse people, right? Like if suddenly I don't need to have everybody within a 20-mile radius of downtown San Francisco, hmm, what is that going to do to, uh, to my uh, diversity uh, ability to, uh, to hire a diverse workforce? What does that do to uh, people who are um, going to be able to capture opportunities with the digital workforce? If my employees are like, oh, what do you mean? I don't need to come to the office? Hmm, actually, why don't I trade my two... Uh, my two-bedroom apartment in San Francisco for a mansion in Montana. What does that do to Montana, right? And I and I and you could say I said Montana. I could have said Costa Rica, 
right? Because for all I know, our, our next superstar um, superstar uh, data scientist might be a mom at home uh, in Rio. So I think this is a very positive development for humankind, um, that we are, we're going to embrace digital work and do it in a way that is inclusive of everybody and not uh, segregated to an elite that happens to be uh, coming out of Stanford and living in downtown San Francisco. I'm taking the tech, local tech Silicon Valley example, but obviously this is happening in many markets uh, where, where there's a concentration of wealth um, uh, within one profile, one demographic and one region. And when you think about the, uh, obviously you're, you're getting ready to announce being remote first. Have you thought about, and I imagine you have, have you landed on a decision around um, how you're going to look at kind of compensation in a fully distributed model? Because I know that's something that a lot of HR leaders are, you know, having conversations with. Do you have a, a set rate based on a set location and that applies everywhere do you do you localize up or down depending on where people live i mean how are you thinking about that as smart recruiters yeah it is a complex topic um and compensation within the u.s is actually the easier <laughs> the easier topic uh, right. because once you get into uh, uh, into like europe you're like well i want to hire this person lives in portugal oh wait we do not have payroll in portugal so i can hire you as a contractor but i cannot actually employ you in portugal unless i put you on a pe po uh, uh, contract but then you're not getting the same benefits as the guys who are so i think um, labor laws are yeah. going to evolve um, and normalize hopefully for to the better right so that's one thing specifically to salaries um i think where we are landing is um, uh, we are going to have a base uh, salary band, if I take the example of the U.S., a base salary band for the U.S. with a city uh, premium. So it's basically, we're not going to say, you know, the job pays 110 in San Francisco and 90 in Detroit. We're going to say the, uh, the base salary for this job is 80. And if you live in Detroit, you get a 10% or a 10K uh, uplift for Detroit city living. And if you are in uh, San Francisco, you get a 30K uplift, whatever the, the numbers might be, right? So that actually it is very clear that your location uh, is part of the compensation because we are helping you uh, uh, live in an area where you happen to live uh, that, um, that has a higher cost of living. Um, to be to be candid, this is uh, um, this is a, an experiment uh, we're going to do, and I think we and every organization we have a lot to learn about uh, how to handle that, right? Because already people are like, "Wait, hold on a minute, can I tell you I live in downtown Manhattan, but in fact spend most of my time with my parents in huh, Texas?" Right. I'm like, "Yeah, sure, of course you can try that. Yes, um, sure, <laughs> you know, just like you can try to take money from the bank account, right? Like, so you can try to cheat, but it's you know it's going to be difficult to find them. Well, yeah, but I'm at my parents only six months per month, six months per year, and so does that qualify? Does that not qualify? It's going to be very difficult. And already uh, labor laws in Europe are already adapting to say, hold on, hold on. If you actually ask me to work from home, you need to pay because, in fact, my home is becoming your office and therefore I need an office allowance, right? So labor laws are going to come in the mix here. Um, and um, it's going to be a, a couple of years of transition, maybe a decade of transition before I think we have the ability to hire people wherever they live, um, which is ultimately what the people want uh, to be able to work and live wherever they want and, uh, and what companies want to get access to the talent. Great. 
Yeah, I mean, it's such a, I think it's such a great point around just the the complexity of the the laws and compliance and regulations that they're just, you know, they are not ready for this. And it's going to be years before they yeah. really keep up with this new reality of, I think, mm-hmm. how many people will be working. Um, you know, I want to get into, you You announced, uh, I believe two weeks ago now, you know, Smart Recruiter's roadmap and plans on becoming uh, an anti-racist company and, and more broadly, an anti-racist force in the recruiting market. And I, I want to get into that roadmap, you know, with you. But before we even start there, I want to kind of, you know, get into and kind of discuss a bit with you, you know, as a leader and personally, you know, as the, as the increased consciousness and conversation around racism and systemic inequity and inequality, uh, you know, have you know risen and there's a, a heightened consciousness following George Floyd's murder, you know, how has that impacted you personally, you know, a, a, as a leader, and, and this may kind of tie into the origin story of where this roadmap come from, came from, but um, I'd love to just get a sense as a CEO, like how you experience that. Um, candidly, uh, for me, it's been a wake-up call. Um, it has encouraged me to dive uh, much deeper into my own racism, um, and I mean, you and I have have uh, uh, met many times. We've been on many conferences. You've been at many of our hiring success conference. You know, we've we talked a lot about diversity. We promoted uh, uh, a lot the idea of diversity. I launched a reverse recruiting movement to help uh, people, the underprivileged people, find jobs. We give our technology to to help underprivileged candidates find jobs. I volunteer in prison where people are mostly uh, black or, or people of color. And I would, you know, six months ago or five months ago, I would qualify myself as a non-racist good guy with nothing more I can do. And uh, really through, through this time, is it, this is what it took for me to realize that not racist is actually racist. That not racist as a white, privileged white man, uh, especially as a man, and I have economic privilege, so I'm kind of kind of getting all of it here. Um, but as a privileged white person, uh, not racist means I'm just enjoying the system. Um, and so that actually, this these events um, is what it took in my life, and I'm I'm 52. Um, and uh, it took 52 years for me to realize that and uh, to then say, okay, hold on, hold on. Yeah, actually, I need to be anti-racist. And actually, if I want to be anti-racist, if my company, if I want to be anti-racist, can I make my company to be anti-racist? And wait, because my company actually helps 4,000 enterprises around the world manage almost a million hires a year. And we process like north of 30 million candidates a year. Like, can I actually use all of my force in the market and turn smart recruiters into an anti-racist force in the recruiting market. And that's kind of how it, how this whole thing started. Yeah. Well, and I think for a lot of people, for a lot of white people specifically, you know, hopefully this moment is causing a lot of that reflection and introspection and, and this idea of, you know, systemic inequity is systemic because it's built to favor us, whether you feel that you are, you know, racist or just benefiting from those systems yourself as opposed to being actively and consciously anti-racist. And I think for a lot of people, and I'll put myself in that category again, like that, the term anti-racism, 
and anti-racist isn't even something that uh, was really on my radar until this year. And, you know, that was a huge wake up call, yeah. I think, for for a lot of people who considered themselves to be uh, progressive and, and supporters, but realized that actually they were, uh, you know, despite maybe not being actively racist, they were benefiting from these systems that were built up around them to favor them. And so when you're when you're going through this process within your company to, uh, you know, create this new anti-racist roadmap and stance, walk me through how that got created. So I'll, I'll share a link uh, again in the show notes. So for listeners, you can review the whole program. But how did that come together? How did you kind of uh, involve employees? Did you involve employees? Like what was the what was the actual process of creating kind of what your focus areas would be? Um, we did involve employees. Um, so, uh, we kind of, kind of started from a dark place, um, and, uh, 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 realizing what, you know, the extent to which we had to, uh, to evolve. Um, uh, I spent some time talking to the, frankly, very few black people that work at smart recruiters. I think we're like 3% of our workforce, uh, black in the U S in Europe, we're not categorizing. So you can't, you can't call statistics, but which is a different topic. But the, the uh, I, I spent some time talking to our, our black Martians uh, and understanding them better. Um, and uh, we had a we had a town hall uh, where I, I sort of publicly uh, uh, apologized for my ignorance. Um, I raised the importance of it, and I encouraged everyone to participate in the definition of this plan. And then we nominated a, a small group that went around and, and, you know, kind of gave me their conclusions uh, two or three weeks later. So it was a, a you know, a ground, ground up kind of plan, uh, which we rationalize. And again, there's a lot of things that come naturally when you think, oh yeah, as a company, we want to be anti-racist, but then in our job as a tech, talent acquisition suite, there's much more that we can do for our customers, for the market uh, and for our users. And that's kind of where the bulk of the work went. You know, one of the things that I'm curious about is companies begin to uh, undertake this, you know, self-reflection as an organization and, and ultimately through that, you know, really start to look at some of their systems and their processes and, you know, internal programs throughout the employee life cycle to try to, uh, you know, identify systems of bias you know, and, and, and identify systems that produce inequitable results. How do you take that on as a company? How do you figure out, and I know you're in the early stages of this journey, so I'm sure you don't have a definitive answer, but like, how do you begin to kind of guide your team through looking at uh, identifying uh, those kind of, um, you know, systemic inequity programs and systems within the organization? Yeah. Um. It starts with awareness, um, which is, you know, really for us, the first pillar of our plan uh, is awareness. And if you do not understand and recognize um, the existence uh, of systemic racism, the existence of white privilege, um, then it's going to be hard to contribute, right? And it's going to be um, hard to change. Um, so we start with awareness. Um, and from there, we ask each uh, Smartian uh, to build their own anti-racist plan, uh, so that 
ultimately, uh, we can have top-down programs across the entire org, but the best thing you can do is make, make this everybody's goal, everybody's problem. And on awareness, we started on an interesting journey with a, a, a work, uh, it's a book and, and workshop. It's a 28-day workshop, actually, um, called Me and White Supremacy. Yeah. And the, the title itself is like, whoa, what do you mean white supremacy? Like I had people in the company say, Jerome, I, I'm not doing an exercise that talks about white supremacy, right? Because it's so politically charged and whatever. But actually, uh, um, when you go through this exercise, uh, which is 28 days, 28 chapters, one day, one chapter, and you just like three pages. So the first chapter is white privilege. So it explains what is white privilege. And then at the end of this, you have to journal your answer. And the questions are simple. In what ways has white privilege benefited you in your life? And when you sit down and you take a piece of paper and you start documenting this, you can, as a white person, you can list your entire freaking life. Like everything is easier when you are white. And uh, so we, we started that exercise. It's been going on now for a couple of weeks and we're doing this uh, together as a team. So people are, you know, sharing their, their reflection and, and their own racism. And so there's, there's an element here of cross-awareness. We made it voluntary. So this is not something like you must do this, right? But we actually got oof, almost 25%, 30% of the team during the vacation to raise their hand and commit to this 28-day program, which is a long program to commit to. I think it's, this is where it starts. It starts by awareness. Then people are going to define change uh, and it will apply across the organization. Yeah, and I think that the that awareness and really developing the language, uh, to your point, I think is so important. You, you have to be able to have those conversations around. I think once people understand the meaning and the definitions of things like you know white privilege and things being centered around whiteness, and they can they can hear that without again white fragility to use another term and and have that kind of uh, automatically put them on the defensive. Uh, I, th I think it becomes very clear to see that. And, and, and you, know, you have to have that awareness and that vision in order to start to make that change. And so you know, for you, obviously, the, the aspirations of yours are you know, clearly personally for you as a leader you know, within all of the Smartians and the operating rhythms of smart recruiters, but then much more broadly than that. I mean, obviously your, uh, your reach is uh, hitting over a million hires. Uh, so how do you kind of extend your aspirations out to the broader smart recruiters ecosystem? Yeah. So we, um, in the process during, in May, June, uh, July, I actually personally spoke to, literally dozens of uh, DNI leaders and TA leaders in our customer base. Um, and I asked them a simple question, which was, so what does is, what is best practice diversity hiring look like for you? And uh, poof, I didn't get good answers. Like I got a lot of anecdotal uh, answers. I got a lot of... Um, you know, ideas. I got a lot of anecdotes. I got a lot of hopes. I didn't have someone tell me, oh, poof, you want to do good at diversity hiring? Well, it's very simple. You do one, two, three, four, five. And yeah. if you do this, then absolutely it will work. And so that's where we came up with like, hey, not only do we need to be a role model ourselves, we, but we actually could take the lead here in helping set new standards. And then drive innovation as a technology, but just simply 
set new standards, set a standard uh, on what is best practice diversity hiring looks like. And so we're in the process of doing that. Uh, we drafted a 10-point 10, 10 uh, best practice um, that uh, addresses everything from how you source, who is on the hiring team, how are they trained, what kind of uh, selection criteria you do, how do you do resume screening, where do you find the diverse candidate, how do you do inclusion, how do you make sure that, like, just, but very focused on diversity hiring. And we're now uh, uh, actually uh, sharing this with our customers and whoever else wants to uh, actually contribute in a bit of an open source manner, um, something you're very familiar with, uh, Lars. And uh, the idea being we're going to land uh, with a, a, a diversity hiring best practice. And then we will ask uh, customers, companies around the world to take a pledge um, to actually adopt those standards. Uh, and if they take the pledge, then we'll, we'll actually uh, um, you know, have, have these in a website of companies who have uh, pledged to, uh, to implement this plan so that as a black person applying to this organization, I know that you know, I'm not going to get discriminated. I know that they get it. I know I'm not going to end up uh, in a process that's unfair. I know that I, if I if I accept the job, I'll be uh, in an organization that gets it, that's going to include me. And yeah, maybe I'm, you know, I'm in the early early uh, um, quotas of uh, uh, black people in this organization, so I might feel a bit lonely at times. But I'm definitely going to feel included, and belonging, and supported. Um, and so that's that's what we want to do. Uh, starting there is define a standard for diversity hiring and work with our customers. Um, to implement it. We then include it in the hiring success methodology. We have our hiring success masterclass. So we're certifying, we certified 7,000 talent acquisition leader in the last six months on the hiring success methodology. So this will become its own module on diversity hiring. We're really going to try and, and drive change and just help TA leaders actually have a roadmap to success. Because I think a lot of them kind of have a hard time defining what to do. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. Would you envision at any point the um, the the kind of best practices and the program and even the certification uh, going deeper than recruiting inside of the organization? And what I mean by that is, you know, obviously a lot of your focus naturally is going to be focused on um, the the front end and kind of the TA side, talent attraction, yeah. uh, you know, recruiting, candidate experience, you know, all those things that happen at the recruiting stage of the process, but. Do you envision at any point uh, there being efforts, you know, deeper into the employee lifecycle? So once employees have come into the organization, whether it's uh, retention, development, compensation, uh, you know, any other, um, you know, touch points of the employee lifecycle beyond recruiting? Yeah, I mean, it's obvious that recruiting is the starting point, but it's only the starting point. Yeah. Um, and so uh, there's there's much, much more to be done. Um, we're a talent acquisition, you know, uh, focused uh, uh, expert, and we're going to focus on just diversity hiring and onboarding. So the inclusion part of onboarding, uh, we'll let others uh, try to fix the rest of or other problems. So we're going to really try and say, how can I help you source diverse candidates? What does a diverse uh, sourcing strategy looks like? How can I ensure that you are not discriminating at resume stage? How can I ensure that your selection process is both inclusive and uh, biased and has no bias? And how can uh, uh, you make sure that uh, uh, diverse candidates 
that are being uh, hired feel included when they uh, when they through to onboarding, right? So this is going to be the core, the four core components of our best practice. And once you have that, then up to you to do a good job and uh, and uh, keep that level of inclusion and diversity throughout the employee lifecycle. Well, Jerome, I really enjoyed learning more about uh, you know just kind of how how all of these things have impacted you personally. So I appreciate you sharing that, you know, as well as smart recruiters. My last question for you, you know, when you, whether if there's CEOs listening to this podcast or CEOs that are out there that are, uh, they're going through their own, um, you know, kind of steps and in introspection and have aspirations on becoming an anti-racist company. Like I know you're still early in your journey, but are there any, you know, learnings, any advice, any, any takeaways from, uh, your kind of path to developing this that you think might be helpful for others? Um, yeah, I would say two. One, um, it's the why do it. And uh, diverse companies perform better, period. Like this is not a charity. We're here to make money. We're here to build big businesses. Your investors expect it. Your shareholders, you owe it to yourself. That's the job. Well, actually, if that's the job, then build a diverse company because diverse company perform better. No doubt about this. And there's countless studies you can look at. Second is if you want to be an agent of change, um, then my first recommendation is change yourself first. Uh, and don't don't look to your chief diversity officer to build an anti-racist plan if you still don't understand, you know, what white silence is or what uh, white fragility means, or if you kind of doubt the real existence of white privilege, or if you're not there, like if you do not get it personally, uh, then start, maybe start by doing the work yourself. Well, Jerome, I really appreciate you spending some time. It's uh, it's always good catching up. Hopefully I will, uh, I will see your voice, your face coupled with your voice uh, in the not too distant future. But in the meantime, Definitely want to wish you the best of luck with, uh, you know, all of your work that's being done there. And uh, I look forward to seeing the impact you have on the industry. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Lars. And we are hiring a chief diversity officer to help us bring this plan to market. So if you're listening and you're interested in driving change, the job is on our website. That's great. I will uh, I will make it easier for you. I will put that link in the show notes as well. So you'll have both the uh, anti-racist program uh, and plans as well as that job description when you're listening to this. So Jerome, thanks so much. Thank you for having me, Lars. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book, or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.